0: I think one of the biggest issues that we see nationally is that um, when you do epidemiologic studies, so large-scale population-based surveys, uh, to see how common is PTSD, depression, other mental health problems, alcohol use, um, you see that they're very prevalent and that they're affecting hundreds of thousands if not millions of people. And yet when you ask them whether they're getting help for those problems,
1: many of them are not. Welcome to the Innovatively Speaking podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Medical University of South Carolina. This is the place where we dive into the origins of the next big things, the who, the why, the how, and we explore ideas that are changing what's possible here at the Medical University of South Carolina and in some cases all across the world. I'm Kevin Smith here in the MUSC podcast studio with my co-host, the Chief Innovation Officer here at MUSC, Dr. Jesse Goodwin.
2: Good morning, Kevin.
1: All right, Jesse, we've got we're going to be talking about bouncing back today. Now, I'd say in a difficult situation, bouncing back is always the best option but what about bouncing back after something big like trauma or disaster what how do, how do we handle that that's what we're gonna be talking about today
2: yeah I'm really excited for today's guest and for the topics that we're gonna be covering because I think that they're really timely you know we keep hearing on the news about burnout and stress and how it's affecting all of our workforce not even just after disasters and uh, our guest today Ken um, was an early um, adopter of the role of technology in this. And, And when I met him over a decade ago, he was already deeply immersed in this field. And so I'm excited to be able to share all of his learnings with the audience.
1: Excellent. Well, let's dive right in. Ken Ruggiero, welcome to the MUSC podcast studios. Thank you. Ken is, uh, let me read off some of your credits here. You are a licensed clinical psychologist. You're the professor of nursing and psychiatry here at MUSC, and you also direct the Technology Application Center for Healthful Lifestyles. Is that correct? That's all correct. That's a lot of stuff. (laughs) Well, let's start with a quote um, that that I found from doing some research. Um, It says this, annually post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, or both develop in the first year after injury in more than 400,000 adults treated in US trauma centers. That's a sobering statistic. Can you talk a little bit about about that? Absolutely. Yeah. So we have uh,
0: an initiative called the Trauma Resilience and Recovery Program. Um, And that is designed to address mental health needs for patients after injury. Uh, And we're talking about serious injury in this case. Bad car crashes, motorcycle crashes, gunshot wounds, stabbings, things of that nature. Uh, And so a very high percentage of patients will develop post-traumatic stress, anxiety, depression, uh, sleep disturbance after an incident like that. Uh, But nationally, most of the trauma centers don't really address this well. So it's something that we've been working with trauma centers to try to increase being able to address those issues.
1: What's the disconnect, do you think? Why do you think some of the trauma centers don't quite see it through the lens you want them to see it?
0: They're mostly focused on survival and physical recovery, which you would want them it's to be important. focused on. right. Ken, sure. right.
2: I'm curious, you know you since I have known you for ten years now, I think uh, here at MUSC, um you have a whole suite of programs, but they're really all focused on mental health from sort of at a very you know thirty thousand foot uh, view. So I'm curious if you can describe for us sort of what brought you into this and and your focus on mental health and wellness, um, you know across the the board.
0: Well, I'm a clinical psychologist by training, so a lot of my training was in trauma and post-traumatic stress uh, to begin with. And so I came here to the National Crime Victims Research and Treatment Center initially within psychiatry, uh, and there's a lot of expertise in the trauma and mental health field there. So we did a lot of research to try to explore risk factors for post-traumatic stress, depression, Some work was being done by Heidi Resnick to uh, develop a video-based educational intervention to try to reduce risk for PTSD and depression after sexual assault. um, We we saw that there were some positive impacts from that work. And that was around the time of uh, the internet starting to be more widespread. And so we decided maybe there's an opportunity to get information out to the general public when large-scale incidents occur or when traumatic injury occurs so that we can make it more accessible. The goal really is to increase accessibility and increase quality of care for patients who develop mental health problems after trauma.
2: A lot of your work and part of your directorship you know, surrounds the use of technology in sort of your approach to uh, identifying and then offering interventions for these patients. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the pain point that you saw that led to the need to incorporate technology as part of your approach?
0: Absolutely. I think, I think one of the biggest issues that we see nationally is that um, when you do large scale population based surveys uh, to see how common is PTSD, depression, other mental health problems, alcohol use, um, you see that they're very prevalent and that they're affecting hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. And yet when you ask them whether they're getting help for those problems, many of them are not. Um, In fact, more than half of people who develop anxiety or or mood disorders don't get help. uh, And those who do wait an average of nine years. Um, And so when we ask them why they're not getting help, some of them just don't know how to navigate the system. Uh, You know, there are a lot of access barriers, there's stigma, you know, and so uh, I think 42% of a survey that we did said that they would rather address the problem on their own. That doesn't mean that they wouldn't use the help of an app or technology to help them do that, Um, but but you can see that there's a lot of resistance and a lot of lack of awareness of how to access services. And so the idea of using technology was really geared toward trying to improve access of evidence-based solutions to the patients who need them. But might not go to a healthcare system to receive those formal services.
1: Well, speaking of stigma, um, sometimes there's a stigma around medication. Um, I think people struggle with being on a drug for anxiety. Um, but uh, but technology. I mean, everyone has their phone in their pocket, typically. Um, so, do you find that the the technology is more accessible for people who maybe have some hesitancy?
0: Great question. Absolutely. I do think that it's more accessible. Um, I think that is a way to get a foot in the door. However, I also think there are limitations to technology. So some of the things that we've seen, uh, when we... uh Uh, Create an app uh, as a standalone intervention, and we've done this with an app called Bounce Back Now for disaster survivors, Um, we have found that it does move the needle with regard to symptoms of anxiety and depression, meaning that people do have some benefit, but they don't get anywhere near the same level of benefit as they would get from formal treatment uh, or probably medication-based treatment as well. Um, So it's the way that we think about technology is that it should be embedded within the broader healthcare system that patients should have access to technology and technology-based solutions, but that probably shouldn't be the only place that they go for the help that they need when they have high levels of clinical problems.
2: So Ken, you mentioned uh, your program Bounce Back Now, um, and that's how we opened the show, was talking about the need to bounce back after you know significant events. Can you describe what Bounce Back Now is, so the fundamental principles of what it entails and then how it's rolled out?
0: This work started after the September 11th terrorist attacks, and after some work that Heidi Resnick, as I mentioned earlier, had done uh, in the emergency room with sexual assault survivors. Um, We really just tested for feasibility some basic education on the web um, to try to increase people's awareness of mental health problems that can happen after disasters. And so we put some things on the web, feasibility tested them, and then since then have developed uh, a much bigger web-based platform uh, for adolescents after disasters, which we found to be helpful for anxiety and depression. Uh, And more recently, we created the app called Bounce Back Now that we tested with adults affected by five different hurricanes in 2017 and 2018, and saw that... um, we were able to reduce risk for post-traumatic stress and depression. But the basic principles uh, of the app, uh, as they are right now, we're really uh, focused on evidence-based approaches. So, you know, there are plenty of treatments out there that are pretty complicated, and you really can't do them without a mental health provider. But there are others that are actually very straightforward and simple to use, things like behavioral activation. And behavioral activation, broken down into, into its basic elements, really is increasing fun and functional activities in a structured way, you know, scheduling more fun and functional activities, identifying what your values are and picking activities that with fall within those values and increasing them over time and tracking them and seeing how they affect your mood. So those are those are some of the basic elements of Bounce Back Now.
1: And all that is embedded in the app itself? Correct, yes. That's fantastic. And what, let's talk about access to that app and, and how people can get a hold of it. It's uh,
0: widely available. It's on iOS and Android, uh, so anybody can download it free. Um, and it is also about to be released in Spanish as well. Uh, it will be called Palente Hoy.
2: That's fantastic. So when, when individuals use these, can how much um, behind the scenes support from a provider um, broadly defined uh, is required? Are these standalone where they download it and just move through the activities themselves or is there some type of data collection feedback that's going on behind the scenes that's kind of guiding their process through use of the app over time?
0: Great question. So the the right now it's Available, but not embedded within a broader healthcare system. And this is partly why I said earlier that we need to, because we just completed the research uh, and we just launched the app. Um, and so th- this work is sort of fresh and we're just learning from it now. And that's why, that's one of the reasons we've concluded that uh, it, we, we can have benefit, but not major benefit at the level of, you know, uh, addressing clinical diagnoses. And so some of the next steps in this work are to find ways to embed this within the broader healthcare network. So for example. Um, working with Red Cross, working with other disaster response agencies to make sure that this is just one tool in the toolkit, but that this is not seen as a standalone solution. Um, we also plan to take Bounce Back Now and adapt it, uh, probably for use with traumatic injury patients, to see if that's one step on the way, especially for patients who screen positive for anxiety and mood disorders 30 days post-injury, but aren't ready for treatment. You know, Maybe this is something that can get their feet wet, get them get, build some momentum, uh, increase their understanding of uh, what healthcare solutions look like in the mental health realm and then maybe increase their likelihood and acceptability of, of treatment down the road when it's offered to them in a more formal way if they continue to need it. So, so, we, uh, so our plan really is to f- use a solution like Bounce Back Now and find a place uh, in, in a stepped care model within a healthcare system that it can be implemented and adapted for a wide range of populations.
1: Can we drill down a little bit more on maybe the symptoms of PTSD? Can, maybe someone's listening right now who's thinking, oh, I know someone who's been through a tough time. How, how, do, how can I help them identify some of these things? I think a lot of people live with this and don't even really realize how it's affecting them. Can you maybe open up on that a little bit? Sure. Uh,
0: some examples of post-traumatic stress symptoms. Uh, so first of all, there's there's usually some sort of major life event. And a lot of times uh, there's life threat uh, as part of that. Somebody thought, feared that they would die in a situation. Uh, and over time, you know, there are a wide range of symptoms that can develop. Some of the more common ones are avoidance. So avoidance of people, places, uh, things, even conversations that remind people of an incident. And Another is hyperarousal. So when you encounter situations that remind you of the incident, it might raise your uh, anxiety level in the moment, distress level in the moment, your heart rate, things like that. You might start sweating. Um, sleep disturbance and let, loss of concentration is another issue that often affects people. So those, those are a few examples.
2: We've spoken about Bounce Back Now um, and a little bit about your trauma resiliency program. Are there other things that you're working on in this space?
0: One of the things I'm most excited about right now is Spark. It stands for Supporting Providers and Reaching Kids. I, I mentioned earlier that we've been working on a lot of apps and web-based platforms to try to increase access to care, but this is a quality of care initiative. When you look at the community mental health service agencies that provide services to kids. A lot of these providers are juggling 90 kids on their caseloads, uh, meaning you know, they only have 40 hours in a week and usually a therapy session is an hour long. So I don't know how you juggle 90 families on a caseload. Um, usually treatment is once a week for an hour. Um, so that means that kids probably aren't getting all the help that they need and also that these providers are stretched too thin. And we see that there's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of stress among the providers um, and they, they can't be reasonably expected to be expert in 30 different treatments, uh, which they kind of are asked to do. And so one of the things that we wanted to do uh, to make therapy a little bit more interesting for kids, but also easier for providers to do, was to build a collection of games and activities that are designed to help providers deliver a specific type of mental health treatment. This one is called Trauma-Focused Cognitive Behavioral Treatment, and the reason we chose that was because we have a lot of expertise in that treatment, but also because it addresses behavior problems and anxiety and mood, and so we figured what we could learn from this uh, package could help us maybe apply what we learn to other mental health disorders as well but uh, what we did was we met with expert trainers who trained these providers in this treatment, learned where they tend to face the most challenges in delivering treatment to kids, and uh, mocked up a variety of different games and activities that are all consistent with how to deliver the treatment uh, in engaging ways. And we, we uh, after we mocked them up, we piloted it with providers and now are rolling it out on a much wider scale. So we have 250 kids who have used this fairly recently over 100 providers, almost all of the providers want access to this. We're testing it right now, so we can't give it out widely. Um, but it it's something I'm very excited about that the clinicians all love, and it helps them um, they, they feel that it helps them deliver treatment in a more effective way. And so that's something that we're testing right now on a pretty large scale. Uh, we're, we're hoping to see whether or not it actually improves ch- children's outcomes, but we're also in the, in the room with audio recordings, um, seeing whether it improves children's engagement, uh, the way that they interact with providers, and to also see whether it helps providers stay on protocol and, and complete treatment more efficiently. So that's something we're real excited about. We see this in the classrooms. You know, we go into the school setting, we see the smart board, we see all the technology that they're using to help uh, kids learn certain skills, but we don't see this in the therapy sessions. And I think that's that's the wave of the future. That's where we need to go. And very little of it is being done right now. So it's exciting to be kind of at the cutting edge of that work.
2: Ken, it kind of reminds me of... Um, almost like physical therapy, right, where you go in and you exercise, but there still generally would be uh, improvement if you actually continue those same exercises at home in between sessions. So, is that the plan for Spark? Would something like that work, where they where you have children going in and working with their providers, but then being able to continue the work at home?
0: It actually is. That that is something that is. Common and that providers really should do anytime they're doing behavior therapy or cognitive behavior therapy, they should be giving certain things for the child and the and the parent to uh, practice at home. They call it homework or practice or whatever. Uh, but the Spark Toolkit isn't currently designed to help. Uh, providers push some of these activities to the home setting through the caregiver, but it will be, and we're in the process of, of creating that. We just weren't able to do it uh, within the context of the research because then we wouldn't be certain about why we were having positive benefits if we had positive benefits. So um, so that's that's why we held back on doing that initially, but we are in the process of doing this, and, and we see that clinicians are excited about the ideas.
2: I think it's exciting both what you're doing from a technology perspective in the session, um, just you know, thinking about my own kids and how sort of addicted they are to being able to do things that are technology-based. And then also the idea of being able to, for that cohort of, of kids that need help, um, make their homework technology-based since they all want to be on their iPads or iPhones anyways, if you can start to make some of that time more productive um, and beneficial for them, I think is pretty exciting for for your future versions of this.
0: Exactly. and And there's actually one other issue that sometimes affects clinicians serving families in school-based settings is that they don't see the caregiver often enough. And so being able to share some of this technology with the caregiver uh, outside of the actual therapy session can be something that can help outcomes as well.
2: Yeah, it's an interesting factor that doesn't come readily to mind, but um, it would be a big impediment, right, for, I mean, it's great to be able to offer this during a school-based setting because you have access to the kids and it doesn't disrupt family work schedules, Um, but the challenges associated with that I hadn't really thought through. So that's great. When Kevin was introducing you, he mentioned that you are the director of our Technology Application Center for Healthful Lifestyles, which at MUSC we call TACL. Uh Can you describe Tackle and what its mission is and, and sort of what it started as and maybe what it's, the future vision of it is?
0: Sure. Uh, so Tackle is the Technology Application Center for Healthful Lifestyles. It's a smart state center. Uh, South Carolina has about 70 or so smart state centers across the state. Um, I think MUSC has at least 30 of them or so, um, but the, the overall mission is to improve access and quality of care through technology. Um, and the founding director of the, of the center was Frank Treiber. He retired a couple years ago. He did some fantastic work. um, And uh, his colleague, Jessica Chandler, who now works with us uh, under Tackle, uh, they did a lot of great work in medication adherence using technology. They created a pill bottle that sort of pinged to your phone and reminded you when to take your medications. But also, uh, it was connected to uh, blood pressure readings so that you can monitor and reduce risk for cardiovascular disease and stroke. So that was, that was some of the early work that was done. The work that uh, my team and I have done is focused in the broader mental health realm, as we discussed, with access and quality of care, uh, working with a variety of trauma-affected populations. We also work with firefighters. I forgot to mention that earlier. But, um, but we have a whole suite of apps and, and web-based platforms for firefighters uh, who often face stigma and have major life events as well um, to reduce risk for behavioral health problems. Um, So so what, what Tackle really does is it provides us a small amount of funding to accelerate the work that we do. Usually, in my world, the way to uh, get an intervention developed and tested, uh, it might take two years just to get approval to do some of the early pilot work. You apply to a federal agency for funding, it might take a long time, you finally get it funded, you then build it, you then have to apply for more funds to test it on a larger scale, and all of this could take five years just to start the big research around it, um, and then. It might take another 10 years or five to 10 years before it reaches patients, um, and that's too slow, especially with technology. So what Tackle does really is it gives us some pilot funds to allow us to test things much more rapidly, so that we can go for the tests, the bigger tests, earlier in the process to make sure we have the evidence that we need to then get it to patients a lot sooner than we would otherwise.
2: Yeah, that timeframe, particularly if you're talking about technology-based interventions, you know, somewhere between you know five and 15 years is, is way too long. At that point, the technology you started with is probably obsolete. Uh, you know, when we think about it, just how far uh, even use of our phones, all of us can sort of think through what we did with our phones five or 10 years ago versus the way that we interact with them now. And so the idea that you can have a concept for an intervention that's going to take you 15 years technology-based um, is sort of mind-boggling. Uh, when and you think about it and and it it further underscores the uh, importance of a center like tackle and being able to really expedite innovation in this space, such that we can get to better outcomes much faster.
0: The good news is that even when the technology does evolve, usually we can pivot with it, and and I think that's another thing that the Smart State Center can help us with. You know, for example, when we found that the bounce back now web based platform, which we tested in 2012 after the 2011 tornadoes that affected Joplin. In Missouri and northern Alabama with adolescents, you know, that was helpful to adolescents and it reduced risk for post-traumatic stress and depression. But now kids aren't using platforms like that anymore. And so we need to adapt it. And so we were able to get a little bit of funding um, from SAMHSA to help us to do exactly that, to develop an app uh, that adapts the adult version uh, and uses a lot of what we had on the web, but pairs it down uh, into an app. So we, we it's not that those things will just always sit on the shelves, it's just that uh, we have more work to do. Uh, but that takes longer and we want to get it to patients sooner. So I think that's where where Tackle can really be a big help in accelerating how quickly patients benefit.
1: So Ken, for the parents that are listening out there and are trying to wrangle the apps that their kids use now the thought of another app, you know, might give them anxiety themselves. Can you maybe speak to them as to, as to why this is actually helpful and not going to continue or or add to the problem?
0: As a parent myself of, of two teenage boys, I can relate to that perspective and I appreciate that perspective. Um, I, I do think that you have to limit, you know, screen time and make sure that when they are on their phones that, uh, they're mostly doing. You know, healthy activities with those phones, communicating with friends, or, or doing whatever whatever it is that they do, uh, in a healthy way. But you know, this is an example of uh, when you're talking about mental health apps that have good evidence behind them. Um, I, I think those can be helpful to kids. Um, I. Uh, I would not use them as a replacement for mental health treatment, but I do think that a lot of them have a lot to offer, especially for kids who are experiencing a little bit of anxiety and depression, but maybe not raising to the level of needing formal mental health treatment, or for kids who might not get treatment um, on their own initially uh, to try to build momentum toward them getting the help that they need.
1: Well, over the last couple of years with the pandemic and there's been so much, uh, it seems like an increased awareness of, of mental health and people trying to become healthier what have you seen in that in that sphere and how has that informed your research it
0: feels to me in the 20 years that i've been a clinical psychologist that awareness of mental health issues is, is feels like it's at an all-time high i think uh, there is a lot of public awareness not necessarily drilling down into specific types of um, of, of clinical problems that can develop, but but an overall awareness that people are struggling and that people need help and that there is help out there for them, um, which is a good thing. Part of the problem, though, is that we have a shortage of mental health providers. And so getting people uh, the help that they need is is still going to continue to be a struggle for a while. We also see that the mental health system gets overwhelmed. I know that some of our providers, our um, are, are partnering centers, um, I mentioned earlier that a lot of these clinicians are serving 90 families. It used to be 50. Now it's 90, and this is just in the last couple of years. And that's a lot. That's mainly because of turnover of clinicians. Clinicians are leaving those jobs, going to other places, taking other roles, um, and it's leaving those other providers who are in place you know, holding too much on their plates. Um, and so we certainly need to solve that problem. Um, we, we have that problem with traumatic injury patients. We have patients who screen positive. We fortunately have our own uh, clinic that serves these patients through telehealth. Uh, but a lot of our partnering institutions, they don't have a, a program like we do. And so they have to refer out and they really struggle to get patients uh, seen soon. Uh, for the help uh, to get the help that they need so I think it is it's good to have the awareness Um, there are uh, options out there for people but um, but we need to do better and we need to increase access in a lot of
1: different ways well that's exactly what you're doing you're increasing access you're doing you're making pathways uh, for people to get Uh, better to bounce back and we thank you so much and that's that's what we are all about here at this podcast is innovation and you are you're leading that and so we appreciate you spending time with us here today and uh, we wish you all the best I enjoyed the conversation thank you thank you you've been listening to the innovatively speaking podcast with the Medical University of South Carolina if you enjoyed this episode and would like to support the show, leave a rating and review. To hear more innovative ideas and to share your own, subscribe to the show or visit us on our webpage, web.musc.edu innovation. And remember, don't hesitate to innovate.